All right, let's just read it. Mark, we're going to pick up in the middle of where we were last week. Mark 10, 43. Uh, Jesus is saying, don't be like the, the rulers of this world. He says, not so with you. Don't be like Gentiles who snub it in people's faces with their leadership. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. We talked about that last week. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's where we ended last week. Jesus has an upside-down way of viewing leadership. If you want to be great in, in God's team, you must make yourself low. If you want to be the best in the community, you're the person who serves the most people without asking anything in return. Because we saw last week, that's what a slave does. A slave lives to serve their master. They're not looking to be first. They're okay with being last because they know that their mission, their position is for the good of the owner, the good of their leader. And in our case, there's only one son of man, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the one that's worth following. And if Jesus is the one worth following, Jesus is the one worth serving. And if Jesus is the one worth serving, Jesus is the one that we should model and pattern our way of thinking around. And so Jesus says, the Son of Man, he came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom. And now what we're seeing is Jesus is about to physically turn. Uh, if you've been here from the beginning, you know the first seven chapters of Mark, are about the first 33 years of the life of Jesus. And then from Mark 8, we started turning towards the cross, which we're making our way, we're close to Easter. But if you just read, if you're reading any piece of literature, you want to figure out what is the author trying to do. First half of Mark is all about the beginning. And then Mark 8, begin, Jesus begins to teach. And from 8, 9, and 10, you get rapid-fire teachings. And they didn't happen necessarily in order. But Mark puts them in order so that you can see this is who Jesus is. This is what he has to say. But what we're about to read is the end of that section. And so Mark is doing something with the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve. He gives us one last example. Jesus heals all sorts of people all throughout Mark's gospel. But we're about to read the last one. And Mark serve, uh, saves the best for last. Let's just read it. Verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. Doesn't mean anything to us. We're going to come back to this in a second. This is the turning point physically where Jesus is leaving Galilee, leaving the non-Jewish area, leaving um, the suburbs, so to speak, and he's going to the heart of the Jewish faith, religion, the temple. Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. Now what happens? As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was, it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man. Cheer up. On your feet. Jesus is calling you. Now throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith 
has healed you. Now immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now we're in a whole new season here at Liberty and God has moved us as a community. Two years we started in the building a mile and a half from here and now this is our first gathering of many here in this building. But it's not just about a move for location's sake. It's a move for people's sake. Sometimes you don't realize the significance of a shift and a move. And I want to suggest to you that our shift to, from just a warehouse to the school is for people opportunity. There are going to be people that we're going to encounter that we wouldn't have just a mile and a half down the road. Now, we were just looking for a space to meet in the morning, but God provided a community center, so to speak. A school is where the world meets. Anyone with kids know this. When your kids start going to school, your whole world revolves around the school. And so God's bringing us to more people in the community. And this is a good thing. And the good thing about our, our church's story, it's about ordinary people that God chooses to use. Now, God is about to use this very simple man, uh, Bartimaeus, which means Bar, son of Timaeus. We can call him Tim. Because if I call him Bartimaeus the whole time, he seems like an ancient figure that makes no sense. Is that right? Can you give me some Bible leeway? We're going to call him Tim. Tim is in the city of Jericho. Because now, see, I said Tim, and now you can, can relate to him. But as long as he has a Bible name, he's just a Bible guy. But Jesus takes Tim, right, and he uses his life story to model what Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem. Now, it starts where? Verse 46, let's look at it. It starts in Jericho. Now, what's the big deal about Jericho? Uh, Jericho is a city that's about 860 feet below sea level. It just sits to the north of Jerusalem. Now, Bible land, what's the big deal? Jerusalem is the center of the universe. You need to know this. It's the center of the universe for the Jewish people. They believe that it is the most holy ground uh, in the world. So we don't get that because we're meeting in a school auditorium and your kids are in a cafeteria and we're pumping them with sugar. So we don't, we don't understand like holy spaces. If you're a devout Catholic, think the Vatican. If you're a devout Muslim, think Mecca. There is no more important piece of earth than Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is in Jericho, and why is this significant? Because it's the gateway from the north, from all sorts of areas, it's the hub. You feed into Jerusalem, and then you go 15 miles from 860 feet below sea level to more than 4,000 feet above sea level is where Jerusalem sits. You're about to climb a mile high in 15 miles of horrific terrain. It's a dangerous journey. It's a hard journey. Those of you hikers, it's the way towards the peak. This is the pinnacle, and it's huge if you're a follower of Yahweh because when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to the place that God set apart to meet with people at the Temple Mount. That's where you meet with God. So now Jesus is on his way, so he's in Jericho, and this is where he meets Tim, and Jesus is going to symbolically do something in Tim's world that he's about to model out for everyone here in this room and everyone that would listen to the pages of scripture. Now what happens? Uh, it's Passover time. The timing here is key because Passover is the pinnacle, the celebration of all the Jewish feasts because it's where the people of God remember that God's not forgotten them. You ever feel like just God's far away? Just like crickets, you know, you pray, God, God, God. It's like nothing, nothing, nothing. He's got nothing to say to you. You ever been through a season where you just feel like you, you, you try but you can't 
hear or get anything? You don't know if it's real? Well, um, interestingly enough, for the people of God, they feel that way about the temple. Because the temple is God's space, but it's ruled by the Romans. And they're, they're in Jericho on their way up to this great place to meet with the great God to celebrate God's great deliverance, but they're in a mess. So they're remembering that God, thousands of years prior, had heard their cry. They were in Egypt. They were just a group of families, and they were suffering, and they were dying as literal slaves, building bricks for the Egyptian empire, and they cried out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God heard their cry and sent a deliverer, Moses, and he said, I'm going to take you out, and the land I promised to Moses, the land Jerusalem, that land, I'm going to take you there. I'm going to set you free. You're going to be uh, my people. I'm going to be your God. All's going to be good. So here's the story. Jesus is a miracle worker. He's in Jericho, and there are thousands of people around. And they're making their way at the base below sea level. They're about to make the hike up towards Jerusalem to celebrate the occasion where God actually came through. Now, pause on this. If you're going through a rough spot, um, let me just encourage you, don't forget the spots in your life where God did come through. Sometimes we just forget. Like We're like the nation of Israel, the people of God. Uh, Jerusalem's in a mess. It's, it has a Roman ruler. They feel like the temple's not holy because it's not led by a Jewish king and it's not led in the way that God fully designed. But yet they're going to faithfully remember God has been faithful. God is faithful. God will be faithful. But then you got Tim. Tim is a beggar, and Tim is sitting on the edge of the city. And what, what do we see? He's there, uh, and as it says in verse 46, Jesus' disciples, together with the crowd, were leaving the city, and a blind man, Tim. Now, why does he tell us that he's blind? Because he's about to heal him, duh. I mean, I, no, we know that. But, but, but Mark's doing something bigger. He is saying that there is all sorts of blindness. Now, there's physical blindness, sure. But he's going to describe, and we're going to get back to this next week, that what's happening here, Jesus opening blind eyes, he's about to do with people who have no clue as to what God's up to. He's going to heal the blind man, but there's another kind of blindness. Remember back from last week, James and John, right? They're like, Jesus is about to go towards Jerusalem, and they're like, Jesus, can you do something great for us? Sure, what do you want? Could you make us number one and number two? The disciples James and John are slow to understand. They're blind. They don't get that Jesus just predicted, I'm going to die. Be handed over the Gentiles, beaten, crucified, three days, rise again. They don't get it. The disciples who've been with Jesus for three years are blind, and yet the blind man sees. We're supposed to read, as we think about the story, you're supposed to get the contrast that God is going to use the most simple guy to show what the other guys have not figured out. Point being, you could be here, and this could be your first exposure to who Jesus is, what the Bible's about, singing Christian songs, and your eyes can be open, and you can walk out of here in full, rich relationship with your creator. Your, your past can be wiped away. The, the sin is gone. The guilt is over. You can come alive to God or there are others of you who can sit in a church, sit in a seat, eat the food, drink the coffee, and leave unchanged. That's the contrast you have here. you got a crowd of people who don't get it, and he comes to Tim, and look at what Tim does. He says, verse 47, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, 
son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what's the big deal? Jesus, son of David. Now, he's clued in, and we're supposed to catch that that phrase is a marker, not about anybody, but he, he ties the marker, son of David, to Jesus. Now, what's that all about? Um, they're going towards the temple, right? A Bible quiz, people. Who built the temple? All right, Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. Okay, so, so hear the story. They're about to go up into Jerusalem, the city of David, because David was a guy who loved God. And when you really show your love for God, let me tell you this. People may not see your love for God, but God sees it. And David, even though he was a simple man, God raised him up and made him from a shepherd boy to a king because he had a pure heart. There's been no one in the history of Scripture quite like David. He's a man after God's own heart. And so, so David says to God when he becomes the king, I want to build a place for you. I, I, I've got a palace, but people are worshiping you in a tent, a temporary structure. I want to build a place where people can meet with God because, God, I know you, and you know me, and I want everyone to know how great you are. And God says, that is the most, that's the most honest and, and heartwarming request. I'll give it to you, except your son Solomon will build it. And so Solomon is the son of David. Now, interestingly enough, Solomon had a thing about him. Solomon was known in the first century as one who had healing power. We don't get it all directly from Scripture, but the sense, the tradition about Solomon is that the son of David, Solomon, had healing power. So even those who weren't followers of God, they would invoke the name of Solomon if they thought you were possessed by an evil spirit. They want to cast out the demon. They would invoke the name and the power of the son of David, Solomon. So Solomon, or son of David, are connected with power. So Tim realizes Jesus is not an ordinary man. He has power. And maybe that's just where you're at. Maybe you don't get all the theology, you don't understand the Bible, but you realize that Jesus is a powerful name and Jesus is a powerful person. Well, don't forget to read what he does for those like Tim. He screams out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I need your help. Now, sometimes people don't like that. They don't like a crowd being interrupted. So verse 48, many rebuked him, told him, be quiet. Now, who, what right does this guy have to talk to Jesus? He has no right. He is a beggar. He's wearing a cloak. Remember, it said later on that he threw his cloak away. Uh, you don't need a coat in Jericho because it's hot all the time. But he's got his coat that he throws out, and he's smart. Tim is a genius. Where do you go if you want to get money? If you're on uh, anywhere in Sunset Corridor, you go to the exit or entrance of 26. Don't you? If you want to get a little bit of change, have a creative sign, that's your cloak, and, and you, you know, put on a little bit of a face, and that's the place that you go. So why is Tim in Jericho? Because it is the place where people funnel from all of Galilee to go and worship God. When you go to worship God, you got to have cash because you bring a sacrifice, right? So people are coming with animals and with money, and so he's trying to call on people going to worship, be generous, don't forget the poor. Because if you love God, you got to love the poor because all throughout Scripture, God's heart is bent for the poor. So Tim is there saying, will you please help me? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they tell him, shut up. What is your attitude? Because I could tell you mine. 
when you're driving up to someone that you think is maybe a con? What's your attitude? We've got to see Tim with the color in the pages of Scripture. Why are they telling him to be quiet? They tell him to be quiet is because he's not the guy who goes to the rabbi. He's not the guy that goes to the master. This is not the kind of guy that Jesus loves to touch. And this is what I want to encourage you. If you think that you're someone that Jesus is uninterested in, you are sadly mistaken. Jesus is interested in the story of every person in this room and everyone in this great city that we live in. Jesus cares about the haves, and he really cares about the have-nots. He cares about the broken. He cares about the needy. He cares about the blind. He cares about the beggar. He's interested in everyone. And let's never forget, as we enter into this new phase and this new community that we have here at Sunset, meeting at Liberty High School, let's never forget this is not about us and cushy seats and sound and lights and stage and coffee and cookies at the end. This is about getting reoriented to the mission of Jesus. It's about figuring out his heart for people that may not be as lovable as we think. It is about us being reoriented to, from, away from our own selfishness and back to the heart of God because Jesus listens to the guys cry. He says it again. Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, Jesus stopped. Literally, Jesus stood still. Wow. I think that's so cool. Jesus stood still. He is on his way to go to his father's house, the temple in Jerusalem, celebrate Passover like thousands of other pilgrims. But Jesus has time to stop. Don't you forget that. When you cry out to God in your own way, it could be at home, it could be driving the car, it could be at the office where you're stressed out, it could be as you see your kids go off to school. When you are in trouble, cry out to God. Because the crowd may not care, and the disciples actually really don't care either. But Jesus cares, and it, he stood still, Scripture says. And what does he do? He says, call him. This is great. Three times, read it. Three times in verse 49, Jesus invokes this calling. Look at verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. The word is phonea. It means call. It means summon. It means invite. And I think that's the best word. I don't think it's like, hey, Tim. It's an invitation. He invites him to spend a little bit of time and ask what he wants. Three times we see he called him. First time, Jesus said, call him. Second time, says, so they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. This is interesting. When you think about what it means for us to be a community that thinks about other people and that is involved in our community, some of you think, well, I don't know if I'm able to really communicate my faith, this whole sharing Jesus with people or missional communities and getting in with a group of people and trying to figure out how you can love people and serve people, that's, that's really hard for me. Can we just make it simple? Because Jesus uncomplicates what we often make confusing. What does it mean for you and I to represent Jesus in 2014 in the city that we live? One, we need to remember that Jesus is calling people. It starts not with our call. It starts with Jesus' call. And then secondly, it's the disciples who call the man to come forward. So they, they say, cheer up on your feet. In other words, 
Good news, why? He is calling you. Same word, three times in one verse. So Jesus is calling, and then his disciples call. And what does it mean for his disciples to call? It simply means that they remind this guy of Jesus' calling. So, so for us, what is this like? It's about remembering that Jesus is concerned about everyone at all times. He is thoroughly looking for people right now. As we're seated here, let's not forget, there are more people in Washington County than in this room, to state the obvious. And when we think about every seat that's not filled right now, that just represents a space for someone who is maybe confused, maybe burnt out, maybe uninterested, maybe apathetic, maybe seeking. And it's about you and I remembering, disciples, this story is the last, chapters 8, 9, 10, about what it means to be a disciple. For the last few weeks, we've been saying the same thing again and again and again. Disciples, seek and save that which is lost. Jesus is not coming to be served, but to serve. So disciples serve. Disciples take up their cross and follow him. Jesus said back in chapter 8, if anyone will come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. To, dis- to be a disciple is to get behind Jesus and do what he's doing. Well, Jesus is calling people. Now, we're so busy, and this is not pointing the finger, I'm pointing it at me. I'm so busy, I'm so consumed, I'm so full, that sometimes I need someone to remind me, like I'm reminding you, that Jesus is looking for people who are not interested in him at all, or who are broken, who are hurting, who can't make it. Tim, in the first century, has no right to be in the presence of a a rabbi, a teacher, a holy man. But Jesus makes the step and says, crowd, be quiet. I'm calling him. And tonight, not only only is Jesus calling you by name, but he's calling everyone. Uh, So who are the types of people that Jesus wants to reach here in the Sunset Corridor? Let me narrow it down to one group. Everyone. Who, who are the called? The called are the ones breathing. The ones breathing right now, the ones who have life, who breathe, God breathed the breath of life and gave every person who's alive that initial breath. Yes, it's biological, it's chemical, it happened in a mother's womb, but it's a gift from God. Anyone who's breathing, breathing is the called. And Jesus is going and he's seeking and he's looking to rescue, but... It doesn't happen when we don't follow what Jesus told his disciples to do. He said, you go and get him. And they say, cheer up. Good news. Jesus is calling you. And so it's not about making it up. It's not about being fancy. It's not about being complicated. It's about being awakened to the reality that what God has done and is doing in you, he has enough power, enough love, enough ability to do in someone else's life. So let's not forget this whole move to be here in Liberty High School is a move for us to make more space and more opportunity for more people. So Jesus said, call him three times. He's inviting people. Now let's just look at two implications from this. And then I want you to hear a story tonight of one person, I just heard about this a couple of weeks ago, one person in our community that's kind of uh, living this out, this, this openness of eyes to see. Uh, but let's just finish the text. So Jesus called him. Uh, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you, verse 50. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now, two implications tonight. I want you to write them down. Uh, But it's based on verse 51. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. 
Now look back at verse 36. It's identical. Jesus, speaking to James and John, when they said, Jesus, do whatever we ask, nice humble request, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Now James and John, supposed disciples, supposed disciples said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left. So his supposed close followers say, I want one spot, I want two spots. Now, when Tim asks, look at his response. Look at verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? He said, Rabbi, teacher, I want to see. So James and John, and we're supposed to see the contrast here. In all of these messages about what it means to be a disciple, Mark wants to remind us, just because you've been hearing the message of Jesus, just because you've been walking with Jesus, so to speak, where he's at, involved in what he does, doesn't mean you get it. Tim, in the story, his eyes are open. Look, verse 42, 52. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. So his eyes are immediately opened. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. If you remember from last week, on the road was this little flag phrase. Jesus said he was going to go to the cross. Three times he told his disciples, every time it was on the road. On the road, on the way, is a symbol of for what it means to truly follow Jesus. Not just walking down a physical road, but to get behind him and follow the teachings of the rabbi. And right before going up to the temple, God's space, who is up there walking the 15 miles towards Passover to celebrate God's freedom? It's Tim. And Tim's got a story to share because his eyes are open. And Mark wants us to see the contrast. Sometimes people who say they're following Jesus and they have their eyes open, they're actually blind. And James and John so far, their eyes are blind to what Jesus is up to. But yet it's the humble, it's the poor, it's the simple, it's the regular guy, it's the uneducated, it's the down and out. They're candidates to have their eyes open. And so that's a reminder to you and to me of at least two things. The first is this. Jesus came to rescue anyone and everyone. What we're supposed to see here is the most qualified should be close to Jesus. James, John, and Peter, they've been with him three years. They've seen the miracles. They've gone out and preached in his name. They've, they've healed people, but they don't fully get it. But Jesus, in this healing of this blind man, it's the final healing we're going to see before Jesus goes to the cross. And, and Mark saves the best for last because anyone and everyone is a candidate for God's mercy. And so let's not forget that. I want you to think about right now, there's got to be someone in your world that you say, you know what, no possible way. If you go to the, the Women's Night of Prayer, what, the, the best section, in my opinion, other than the break where they all feed on sugar and go a little buzzed, um, is, is the, the impossible prayer. Every lady in their group, they're, they're, they're together called to, to think about the impossible prayer. And they spend time, and I encourage you ladies, to join from 11.30 to 6 a.m. and spend an evening with your sisters and Jesus seeking God for the good of the community, for the good of the city, for the good of your family. But to me, a highlight is the impossible prayer because you're praying like Tim that an, a blind eye would be opened, that the thing that seems like can never happen would happen. And what Jesus is inviting us to is to live in that tension is that he can do anything at any time. 
and he's asking us to live like Tim. Tim doesn't know it all, but Tim cries out to Jesus, and he's set free. And so interestingly enough, the hero in this encounter is the least likely guy. It's the guy who's broken. Uh, Second thing I want us to think about is faith in Jesus should lead to following Jesus. To me, that's the second implication here. That faith in Jesus should lead to following. So it says here that he put his faith, and Jesus says, by his faith, he has healed you. So does faith heal? And the answer is absolutely yes. Faith in Jesus leads to salvation. Now, because the word here for healed is the word sozo, which means saved. So he could, you could translate this easily. Go said Jesus, your faith has saved you. It's the same word. We think, so many of us, because of the way we were taught, that salvation is the moment that you say, you know what, I am a sinner and Jesus is holy and I am broken and he is altogether good. And so the moment I say, Jesus, I admit my brokenness, I repent, I turn to you, will you rescue me of my sin, make me alive? We call that salvation. And that's right. That's, that's part of it. But the word sozo is much broader than that. Whenever we encounter the reality of Jesus, whenever we experience his freedom, his forgiveness, his physical healing, his setting free of depression, whatever it is that comes from Jesus, you can use the same word, I have been saved. So when I was seven years old, the, the first time that I can recall saying, Jesus, I really need forgiveness. And so I can say, I believe then I was saved. But is that the last time I encountered Jesus? No way. I'm like saved every day. Not in the theologically weird sense of the term. Yes, I have gone from darkness to light and from death to life and from Satan, as Scripture says, to God. That happens the moment we trust in Jesus. But that's just the beginning of the story. Tim experiences salvation. And salvation for him was his blindness was removed and his eyes could see. And this is what Jesus is inviting us to, to follow him, not just to put faith in him moment by moment, day by day for stuff, but to get behind and be aligned and and to live the life of faith. Uh, So why am I bringing this up? Because I think in America, for the most part, uh, some parts of the world are similar, but America, it's epidemic. There's a disconnect for some reason between people saying, I have faith and I follow. Now, let me explain. In America, you say, well, I believe in God. I have faith. I believe in a higher power. I have faith. I believe in Jesus. I have faith. I believe that the sun is warm. I have faith. I believe that, that uh, if you're if your intent and your heart is good, that God will honor it. I have faith. We say faith as this nebulous little thing of internal belief. But biblical faith has to lead to. So, so Tim says, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Then what does faith mean for him? The Bible says he threw away his cloak. He stopped begging. He had a career change. He got up and left Jericho where he was a pauper and the scum of the earth, if I could be quite honest. And he got up and aligned himself with Jesus and he walks to Jerusalem and says, I'm with him, 100%. And so for us, I think we need to bridge the gap of this disconnect 
So what am I saying? If you come to church on Sunday, occasionally read the Bible, give a gift when you feel generous, but your heart is not moving to be more like Jesus, and your desires are increasingly becoming like Jesus' desires, and if you, if you don't care about your own sinful condition, and your own habits, and your own behavior, because I have faith, and I believe, and God doesn't, you know, he understands I'm weak like everybody else. If you're not hungry to be more like Jesus, then I would dare say we, and maybe you, need to learn something from Tim. Tim connects faith with following. And I think what's going to make a dramatic change is not another church. Portland doesn't need another church. Hillsborough doesn't need another church. America doesn't need another church. You know what we need? A group of people who take Jesus seriously. A group of people who say, if Jesus is hardcore, I'm hardcore. Is your stuff more important than Jesus? If it is, then Jesus would say, you need to grow and learn to be a disciple. And so tonight's not a discouraging word. It's an encouraging word, but it's a challenging word because Jesus is on his way to die. And he tells his disciples, he told them three times, it's going to happen to you too. So the way of Jesus is beautiful, but the way of Jesus is never easy. And the way of Jesus has all sorts of highs, but the way of Jesus requires sacrifice. And so what am I calling you to? I'm calling you to both. If we're going to see a move of God on the Sunset Corridor, can I just suggest it's going to cost everything? Everything. It's going to cost time. It's going to cost money. It's going to cost attention. It's going to cost focus. And so tonight, as we think about this new chapter in our story, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to go full on, full in? Or are you satisfied being a casual attender? Tonight, Jesus would say to you, go all in. Now, that's happening all over the place. Uh, one little quote, and I want to invite uh, my friend Gil to come up. Uh, the guy, uh, N.T. Wright, he's a biblical scholar, and he summarizes this so beautifully. And I want you to catch this because he took what took me 35 minutes, and he said it in like four sentences. It says, Bartimaeus is a model to imitate. Unlike the disciples who hadn't really understood what Jesus was about, he's already a man of faith, courage, and true discipleship. Tim recognizes who Jesus is, son of David. He clearly believes that Jesus can help him. Your faith has healed you. And he leaves his begging. The cloak would be spread on the ground to receive money. And he follows Jesus on the way. On the way. And the way is, like I said last week, it's the symbol. It was the name that they called the early disciples. They didn't call them Christians till Antioch years later. They called them the people of the way. And so Tim is on the way. And Peter and James and John, they're on the way. And tonight, are you on the way? The way of Jesus, the way of discipleship, the way of all out for him. Tonight, I invite you to that. 